Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Months after news broke of foster children needing to stay in hotels because of a lack of foster families, lawmakers made new investments in the system for recruitment and retention. But is it enough to fix the problems? And if not, what else needs to happen? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joins me to discuss the latest in the lawsuit over Idaho's new abortion law. Then Family and Community Services Administrator Cameron Gillian and Program Specialist Julie Sevchik from the Department of Health and Welfare discuss the legislative session's investments in the child welfare system. But first, the Idaho State Department of Agriculture said Friday it has received confirmation of multiple cases of highly pathogenic avian influenza virus in two domestic chicken flocks in Gooding and Caribou counties. The disease is highly contagious and often fatal to chickens, but it's uncommon for the virus to infect humans. It's not a foodborne illness as long as proper cooking guidelines are followed. Visit the ISDA website for updates and more information. It's primary election season and the Idaho debates begin next week. Republican candidates for attorney general debate on Tuesday, April 19th. Republican candidates for superintendent of public instruction on Monday, April 25th. And Republican candidates for secretary of state on Tuesday, April 26th. All of the debates will air on Idaho Public Television at 8 p.m. in both time zones. Visit idahoptv.org elections for more information. You'll also notice a few high profile debates are missing from that list. Here to discuss that is Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and president of the Idaho Press Club. Um, the Idaho Press Club has long been a partner in the Idaho debates with Idaho Public Television and several other nonpartisan entities in the state. So I just want to acknowledge for transparency's sake straight away that Betsy and I work together to put these debates on the air. That's right, and we are not the only ones. Our other partners in the debates, in addition to the Idaho Press Club and Idaho Public Television, include the League of Women Voters of Idaho and all three of Idaho's public state universities. So on Friday, we got news that Representative Priscilla Giddings is dropping out of the lieutenant governor debate. Right, and what was unusual about this is there have sometimes been candidates who just didn't want to debate, but in this case, this candidate had committed to the debate, both candidates had committed, Representative Giddings and House Speaker Scott Begke, and this was the Friday before the debate, it's on Monday, it was scheduled for Monday night at eight o'clock, and she backed out on Friday. And her reason for backing out was that she objected to the entire format of the debate, essentially. She wanted to handpick or have approval of which reporters would be allowed on to serve on the panel to ask questions. And frankly, that's not how the Idaho debates work. The Idaho Press Club selects the reporters, Idaho Public Television provides a moderator and broadcasts it statewide. It is not a, a hand-selected, um, querying by um, a, a panel that's picked because they're gonna send softballs. It's, it's just a general open exchange. And 
so Representative Giddings said if she didn't have veto power in advance and approval of the list of reporters she was going to pull out, and she didn't get that, and no candidate has ever had that, and so she backed out the Friday before the debate. Um, Rep uh, Speaker Benke was more than willing to debate and expressed quite a bit of disappointment that he will not get that opportunity to debate his opponent. And, and Speaker Bedke didn't have any prerequisites for his willingness to debate. He was ready to show up and be questioned by whichever reporters the Idaho Press Club had selected. That's correct. And, and to be clear, Representative Giddings' concerns were that the reporter selected by the Idaho Press Club would be biased against her. That's right, and she even um, at one point named specific reporters she was concerned about. They weren't even the ones on the panel, but that didn't matter. She just, she's, in fact, she's, um, her campaign has made some statements that all reporters are biased or that all reporters affiliated with the Idaho Press Club are biased. The Idaho Press Club is just the association of working journalists in Idaho from all media, newspaper, radio, TV. We've been around for more than four decades. We're not biased. We include um, people of all stripes. The one thing we have in common is we are news reporters, and that's our job. And I wanted to bring up the Congressional District 2 race. It, Mike Simpson um, is seeking another term in office. He also declined to debate, but for very different reasons than Representative Giddings. That's right. So Congressman Simpson has debated on the Idaho debates multiple times before and is well familiar with the format, had absolutely no objections to the format or anything about it other than in this case, what his campaign said was he did not want to debate his challenger this time in the primary, Brian Smith. And interestingly, Brian Smith challenged um, Representative Simpson before, eight years ago, and the two of them debated in the Idaho debates on Idaho Public Television. But this time around, Simpson's campaign said that they believe that Idaho doesn't need to hear any more from Brian Smith, and that's why he didn't want to debate him on statewide live TV. Well, generally, it's not candidates who make that decision about their opponents, whether Idaho should hear from them or not. But as a result, we do not have a debate in the second congressional district. Um, there were only those two candidates who had qualified for the debate, and you can't have a debate with just one candidate and no one for them to debate. And, and Brian Smith was very motivated to debate. He, from, from where I was sitting in my part of the planning process, was very responsive to all of uh, the letters and emails that we sent him. And so a very situa very different situation than what we Absolutely. saw in the Lieutenant Governor campaign. Yeah. Um, and that's a very active race, too, with it both ca uh, candidates running hard. That's right. In fact, I did a story um, in the Idaho Press earlier this week that um, the two candidates had become engaged in kind of a who's the Trumpiest contest um, in between Brian Smith's TV ads and Congressman Simpson's campaign mailers, um, each saying that they were more supportive of President Trump and the other was insufficiently supportive of Tr President Trump, which kind of gives you a flavor, perhaps, of how that primary race is playing out. Um, it is a very active campaign. It's too bad for the voters that there's not an open debate that everybody can watch. And there is still one debate that we are missing from the schedule right now. And, and to be clear, uh, before we get to that, I, we send out invitations to submit materials for consideration for our debates for, for all candidates who have a challenged primary. And so not all 
not all races have candidates who submit materials, and we can't have debates with just one candidate. Not all candidates qualify uh, based on our um, objective criteria, and some candidates we just never hear from. Um, That's right, and we certainly can't drag them off the street and force them to debate if they don't want to. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and so we've gotten a lot of questions about why are there no Democratic debates on the primary schedule that's the reason why either we didn't hear from the candidates or they didn't qualify um, in the or the races were unopposed or, or the races were unopposed exactly mm -hmm. um, the the highest profile race that we do not have on our schedule is the GOP gubernatorial debate and as of 1:30 when on Friday when you and I are having this conversation mm -hmm. we still have not heard from the governor little campaign over whether or not he'll even debate in the first place that's right, and and this debate, of course, has been tentatively on our schedule all along. We are hopeful of hearing from the governor's campaign momentarily. Um, we had initially set a deadline of last Friday. Um, their campaign said they had to wait until this Friday. We're still waiting. <laughs> I, I asked midday, are we gonna know um, soon, and was told that they would decide by the end of the day today. And, and I know that our friends at KTBB are in the same holding pattern, that, that they don't have a confirmed debate either. And to be clear, both Janice McGeehan and Ed Humphreys are once again highly motivated to debate and have been responsive to all of our queries that we have sent out. That's right, and uh, there is a, a certain advantage to a challenger, particularly against a strong incumbent, to getting to debate because they get to be kind of on the same level as the incumbent, which there are a few other platforms in which they are, but there are some. Um, and, and so incumbents in some ways take a risk by debating their challengers, but that has always been the case. And in Idaho, incumbents have always wanted to take that risk in order to make their case to the voters of Idaho as to why they should be reelected rather than one of their challengers elected in their place. And in fact, no incumbent governor seeking reelection in Idaho has ever declined to participate in the Idaho debates in the last three decades. So if he were to turn down this opportunity to address the voters of Idaho on a statewide platform, it would certainly be unprecedented. It would, it would for be For our modern time. Yeah. Um, turning from the election to state governing, speaking of Janice McGeehan, uh, her budget made news this week. That's right, once again, um, or I guess we should say lack of budget. Um, the lieutenant governor has overspent her office budget in part because um, she had a judgment against her in a lawsuit from full disclosure here again, the Idaho Press Club over failing to release public records. And the Idaho Press Club brought that lawsuit on behalf of reporters from multiple news organizations who had the same issue. The Press Club won, um, the judge fined the lieutenant governor and ordered her to pay the other side's attorney's fees, which she did. But as a result, her office budget, which is quite small, was short. And she requested a supplemental appropriation to add more state general funds to her budget to cover that but the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee never acted on it, and she has just proceeded along. She has now um, run into a point where her budget is in the red, and this week the Idaho Capital Sun reported that the State Division of Financial Management had set a deadline for her to submit a plan to deal with this shortfall because state law forbids spending any money that hasn't been appropriated. And initially she missed the deadline, then she responded and said, oh, just withhold my salary, but there are a lot more questions. She may have to pay for her health benefits or give up her health coverage. All of her staff is already gone. It's not clear whether her office budget can even cover vendor payments for the rest of the year. And the fiscal year runs until the end of June.
June. The new one starts on July 1st. That's correct. Um, on a different topic, there is new news on the abortion lawsuit. Um, it was stayed late last Friday, but it wasn't stayed on the merits of the law itself. That's right. So the Idaho Supreme Court issued an order staying the law from taking effect while it is being challenged. But that is a procedural thing. And part of the reason for that is that the, the plaintiffs, Planned Parenthood, had requested an expedited schedule for this case to have it move very, very quickly. And because the law was scheduled to take effect, I believe it's coming right up, April 22nd. April 22nd and right. the Attorney General's argued, Attorney General's office argued that the schedule, the briefing schedule that the court set was far too speedy to allow them to mount an adequate defense of this state law, which they wanted to do. And so they asked for more time. And so what the court ended up doing was saying, okay, we'll allow more time, but we will stay the effect. And, and while we proceed on this. And then there has been some back and forth about that because that led to Blaine Kanzati from um, the Family Policy uh, Institute, the group that actually promoted and, and advanced this bill this year, charging initially that the governor's office had, had cut a deal with Planned Parenthood to put the law on hold, and the governor's office said that was false. And basically, there's a lot more nuance to it than that. And <laughs> that was the attorney is... general's office, not the governor's office. Oh, I'm sorry, did I say governor? Yes, that was the attorney general's office. And it, so it, it, it was a procedural matter, but the, the merits of this bill have not yet been addressed by the Idaho Supreme Court, and they will be addressed in briefings that are filed, and, and possibly, we don't know yet, in oral arguments. As a side note on the merits of the case and also the attorney general's role in this, you know, it made news that there were questions as to whether this law would be unconstitutional with some who uh, are, are pro-life, who are anti-abortion, saying we don't know about the novel enforcement mechanism of this particular law and whether it will stand up in court. But the attorney general is charged with defending state law even if he thinks that it might not meet constitutional muster. That's right, and the attorney general, um, I think, worked, worked closely with the sponsors of the bill trying to get it to meet constitutional muster, and that's really the purpose of attorney general opinions that are issued during the legislative session, is to work with legislators to make sure that their bills are crafted in a way that makes them defensible, because that's the job of the attorney general. But I think the most high-profile pro-life person who raised that issue was the governor, Brad Little, who in his transmittal letter for signing the bill said that he feared that it would soon be found both unwise and unconstitutional. Nevertheless, he signed it into law, basically on, on the basis of ideology and, and pro-life beliefs. Um, but that could potentially mean danger in a court challenge. Well, and I am sure that how the attorney general incumbent and his challengers would handle such cases will come up in Tuesday's debate. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press and president of the Idaho Press Club, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Melissa. One more note on elections. April 22nd is the deadline to pre-register to vote. If you miss that cutoff, don't worry. You can still register in person at your polling place on election day or if voting early on per in person. The deadline to request a mailed absentee ballot is Friday, May 6th. Primary election day is Tuesday, May 17th. Joining me to discuss efforts to shore up Idaho's child welfare system are Cameron Gilliland, Family and Community Services Administrator, and Julie Sevchek, Family and Community Services Program Specialist for Foster Care at the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. Cameron, I wanted to start with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Can you tell me how caseloads changed during the pandemic? So the, um, I wouldn't say that the pandemic changed our caseloads. What really seemed to change our caseloads was um, the economy and uh, maybe what you would call the great resignation that a lot of organizations are seeing, a lot of people leaving. Um, but it has had, has had an impact. Um, we, um, we have had um, several social workers leave and um, for various reasons. And as they've gone, their, um, their cases are ticked up taken up by other um, social workers and causing a little bit more stress and maybe even causing some more um, turnover. So we've actually seen about a 30% um, turnover in the last year, which is um, high for us. And so we've been struggling to um, replace those folks and also to cover the workload. And so we've done a number of things to do that over the past year. I know that a number of state agencies in Idaho have lost employees because of a combination of pay and the cost of living. Um, what are the, the factors for social workers? Is it just burnout or is it pay as well? well I think pay plays some um, part in it. Um, everybody is kind of looking to make more nowadays with inflation and everything. But really, um, I look at the exit interviews for people who leave and the number one reason is stress. And so child welfare, social work is stressful. Um, it's one of the most stressful jobs you can have, as you can imagine. Um, and so as people have left, um, they cite that stress and that burnout. Um, and we have burnout before um, this. It seems to be a little bit more severe now, and it was made more severe probably by the pandemic and the um, difficulty with getting kids and, and that sort of thing, as well as, um, families becoming a little bit more isolated during the pandemic with um, children not going to school. And so um, when children aren't at school, teachers don't see them as much. And so sometimes things go on a little bit longer than they would have if children had been at school. As far as issues of uh, um, alleged neglect or? Yeah, educators are um, one of our primary um, referral sources. And so um, you know, my wife is a teacher and um, teachers see children and they see what's going on in their lives. And so if they see things that are concerning, they will um, make a call to us. And so um, we'll go out and investigate that. So I think that's one of the, um, one of the things we were missing during the pandemic. And there's also the question of recruiting and retaining foster families as well. And our friends at the Idaho Capital Sun, especially reporter Kelsey Mosley Morris, um, she's done a fantastic job reporting on the shortage of foster families mm -hmm. in Idaho. Um, it, what are the factors in that shortage? So there's a lot of factors at play. The pandemic has been one of them because it has been difficult for families to make a decision to bring additional people into their home. We have some foster families who have individuals who are at higher risk, um, and so they have to be careful. So that has as been as far an as issue. introducing new introducing people, new people and children who are going to be interacting with people in the community because they will be visiting with their parents. Um, and so having them come back after visiting was a challenge for some of our families. Um, the, Economy is another issue. Um, one of the things that we talk about is families being able to be financially stable on their own without any assistance from a foster care reimbursement, but also having enough space in their home to care for additional children. So it's difficult to ask a family to take in additional children when their home is not large enough to accommodate that. And with the rise in inflation and the rise in housing costs, especially here in the Treasure Valley, that's made it difficult for families to be able to take more children even though they would like to. They can't afford to move to a larger home. 
there are a number of complex issues that you just mentioned, and mm -hmm. there's no one single answer to fix all of those problems. Right. Uh, but after some of that coverage came out about the shortage of foster families, are you seeing an uptick in families inquiring about becoming foster parents. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing an uptick in our inquiries, and one of the things that I really attributed that to recently is when we have a media opportunity to talk about the current situation, we see a dramatic incline in the number of calls to Idaho Careline, which is the easiest way to find out about becoming a foster parent. So typically the week after we have a, me a media experience, we'll see almost double the number of calls. And the nice thing about that is that when families inquiry about becoming a foster parent, it's not necessarily that that day and that moment is when they're prepared to begin becoming a foster parent, but it's when they start gathering information. The more information they gather about what it means to be a foster parent, making the decision about am I ready to be a foster parent, it may be six months or a year down the road that we actually see them become licensed, but they're more prepared to become licensed because they've started talking about it. And for families who are interested, how do they contact the Idaho Care Line? So they can call 211. They can also access that online. Our application is also online on the department's website. We also partner with Idaho, um, Fostering Idaho, and there is a website for them as well, fosteringidaho.org, where there's additional information. But if you go to the department's website, we have an FAQ section that really provides quite a few answers about what would it mean? What do I need to do to be ready to be a foster parent? Once they have made an inquiry to 211, one of our resource peer mentors will contact them to help answer questions. And I'll explain what a resource peer mentor is. So these are individuals who are experienced foster parents. They're either currently fostering or have fostered in the past. And one of the nice things about using their experience is that they have done this. They know what it means to be a foster parent. So I talk to people about, I've walked alongside foster parents for about 20 years out of my career. I haven't been a foster parent. So when you talk to someone who really understands what that is like, and especially what that first placement might be like, it really helps them to decide, is this the right time for me? And it, it's certainly more than providing a place to sleep and food to eat for these foster families. It really is, yeah. They really bring these children into their home and they love them and care for them. And the other part is, is they learn to love and care for their parents as well. We really ask foster parents to engage with and build relationships with birth parents. You know, I, I want to talk about the some of the difficulties that foster families face, and certainly a lot of them are emotional. Some of them are financial, though, however, and that's something that the legislature did address this past year. Yeah, we were um, happy that the legislature um, passed our request for um, increased foster parents' maintenance rates. And so our rates um, went up between 30 and 60% for foster parents. And Idaho had um, the lowest um, rate in, um, in the West as far as foster parent rates go, and now there we're about, um, about in the middle. And so the uh, rates went from about uh, $400 to $700 for children to um, about 600 to 900. And the rates are um, distributed according to child's age, and they're based off of um, studies that show how much it costs to raise kids. So we're real happy that that happened, um, and the legislature was really forward thinking in that. And we think that'll take a burden off of foster parents um, because they do um, provide so much. They shouldn't have to also provide money on top of that. Um, so we we think that that's going to be enough to um, to be good maintenance for those families. 
That's on the foster family side. Back to the social worker and IDHW employee side, is there anything more that the legislature could do to help with the employee recruitment and retainment issue? Well, they've done a lot this year. Um, so in addition to um, the normal um, pay increase that the legislature does, um, which is a 3% this year, they also give us a targeted 7% rate increase for um, some of our social workers, which I think will help out a lot. Um, that's really important for our folks. Um, so overall, it'll be a 10% increase for some of our social workers, which I'm hoping will retain them. That doesn't happen until July, so we're not sure yet um, how that will impact, although they know it's coming. You know, when, when you have a shortage of social workers in one part of the state or statewide, um, ultimately, how does that affect the children who are in the system? Well, it has impacts for children and for um, foster parents, frankly. Um, the, um, what has occurred is um, everything kind of slows down. What happens when a social worker leaves is their cases are given to everybody who's left. So everybody has more work to do and they're just not able to do as good a work as they would have with, um, with um, more staffing. So I would say our social workers want to do great work and with the limited staffing, they're just able to do good work. And so what that means for children is really it just takes more time for things to occur. So you want um, cases to move along. You want children to either be reunified with their families or you want them to um, move to foster care and then maybe be adopted. Well, it takes a social worker more time to work with the families, the birth families, and either to find that they're gonna be able to return those kids or that they'll have to move along. And so we can't see them as often. We can't see the kids as often. Um, it just slows everything down and we could be more efficient and better um, with full staff. And recently there has been more of a conversation in some political circles um, and, and one recent high profile case in which people thought that uh, Child Protective Services had overstepped its bounds. Um, it, that resulted in a number of everything from posts online to uh, protests. And I, is that something you're concerned about affecting social worker recruitment and retention? Well, um, it has received a lot of attention and you know that social workers are thinking about that. The, um, the social workers are motivated by the good they can do. And I think as they um, come into contact with the child welfare program and do that work, um, they recognize the good that's there. And I haven't met a social worker who's left us or who's with us who doesn't feel like they're doing great work. Um, and what, what greater work can you do but to um, help children, really save children or save families? Um, it is just a tremendous um, job. Um, it's hard, but um, we, you know, I, I just have a ton of social workers that I've talked to that I've received um, information from that just tell me how much this means to them. And when they retire or they move on, even those that leave us are just really, um, feel like they've done great work and, and lasting work. I mean, what, what better work could you do? We have about a minute left, but mm -hmm. I, I'm wondering when it comes to recruiting families, what are the biggest needs right now? 
Right now our greatest need is for families who have the skills to help to manage children who are older, so are ages 12 to 18, who may have some mental and behavioral health issues. So we're really looking for families to help support those youth, as well as families who can care for sibling groups, like we were talking about, those higher number of children and how many children can you have in your home. So we really, whenever possible, we keep siblings together, but that can be challenging right now. Are there enough supports for uh, more challenging cases for foster families who take in those children? Um, we could do better, um, and we try to. We're very clear with our foster parents what they're getting into and who's coming to them, um, which has kind of led to some difficulty placing. Uh, we do have a treatment foster care contracts coming into place here later this summer, and we're thinking that will help fill the gap where they'll get more training and more experience to be able to handle those tougher cases. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you both so much for joining us today and talking about this critical topic. And thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho by the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.